This is The Rounds Table. Hello and welcome back to The Rounds Table. My name is Andre Madison. I'm one of your rotating hosts and I am joined today by Dr. Mike Nicholson. Mike is a Cystic Fibrosis Fellow at St. Mike's through the University of Toronto. Thank you for joining us, Mike. All right, let's get started. Mike, tell us about the article that you chose. So I have an article from September 2018 in the New England Journal of Medicine. It's an article at Baloxavir for Uncomplicated Influenza Treatment in Both Adults and Adolescents. All right, cool. Uh, So tell us about why you chose this article. This article was particularly interesting to me based on the fact that in our line of work in both cystic fibrosis as well as physicians were running into the issues of resistance and treatment availability for both infections of bacterial and uh, now viral uh, nature. And so this was uh, looking at new and uh, hopefully exciting antiviral uh, therapy for the influenza virus. Very cool. All right, I'm intrigued. So tell us what the bottom line of this study is. So bottom line of this study that this new and interesting once-a-day antiviral therapy is safe in both a phase 2 and a phase 3 trial uh, for uncomplicated, so individuals not needing to be hospitalized or with significant comorbidities, and effective in both symptom relief as well as serum investigations for reducing viral uh, load. Okay. All right. Sounds promising. Tell us about the design of the study. So the study is interesting in the sense that it's uh, published for both the phase two and the phase three randomized controlled trials. So phase two trial was a double-blind placebo-controlled dose-ranging randomized trial where single doses of baloxavir, 10, 20, or 40 milligrams, and placebo were used. And again, it was in addition to the phase three capstone one double-blind placebo and also tamivir-controlled trial. So looking at uh, one of the arms being the current treatment algorithm for influenza with Tamiflu or also Tamivir. And so these patients were the ages of uh, 20 to 64, and then there was a second set, uh, age 12 to 19. And patients were, you know, randomized in a 2 to 2 to 1 ratio so that they were getting more uh, numbers in the veloxavir and also tamivir uh, treatment group. But also these patients needed to be uh, relatively stable or their infection needed to be uncomplicated. So they had to be outpatients. Uh, they had to be outpatients with symptoms of both a fever but also uh, viral type symptoms of a systemic symptom. Could be respiratory, could be muscular in in, uh, nature, it could be uh, discomfort, pain, but it had to be something that was significant or moderate enough to bring them to their physician and usually should be of no longer than 48 hours. So these were the individuals that were tested and the treatment algorithms were once a day sorry, I should say once, for the Veloxavir, and uh, that's also quite interesting that it's a one-time only pill, and then the Ulcitamivir for five days, or the placebo. So it's sort of a two-for-one there with the phase two and phase three, and so just to be clear, the primary outcome for the phase two and the phase three trial, run that bias again. Yeah, so the uh, outcomes for the phase two was uh, looking at the drug concentration and seeing not only the effectiveness, but ensuring that there was no side effects as we increased our drug concentration compared to placebo. 
And in the phase three, they were really looking at their primary outcome being symptom relief. So the primary endpoint was alleviation of symptoms from the start of the trial. And then this was kind of looked at by their influenza symptoms. So not only fevers, but also the other symptoms that brought them in. But then interestingly, the secondary endpoints were looking at changes of baseline infectious uh, viral titers and viral RNA titers, virus detection, frequency and duration. So pretty interesting, not only subjective, but objective measurements. Very cool. Okay. So tell us about the results of this study. Uh, so start with the phase two. They were able to randomize up to 400 patients, and they were actually able to show that the higher doses were safe and that they were well tolerated, but actually showed that there was a reduction in the amount of time to alleviation of the symptoms with the higher doses. And this was significantly improved compared to placebo. So not only in the 10 milligram, but all the way up into the the 40 milligram dose. This also showed that uh, there was a reduction in influenza titers, which is key going into the phase three portion. So the phase three portion, they were able to kind of look at the alleviation of the symptoms. And again, the interesting part of the phase three trial was looking at the age range of who they obtained. And the median age was low 30s. So between 32 and 38 was your average. So these individuals were you know, younger adults and uh, you know, a little bit more robust and healthy. Interestingly, that they had about a quarter of them were smokers. So again, real world population. And also interesting is that they included people that ended up being influenza swab negative, and there was a 15% that were not as uh, positive on their viral swabs. But uh, what is interesting is that the phase three trial was actually able to show that alleviation of their symptoms, the one-time baloxivir group compared to placebo was significantly different and that there was a reduction in symptoms after about uh, 24 hours. They also noticed that if you had symptom onset less than 24 hours, you had a greater effect of this one-time drug. The comparison between the Tamiflu or Ulcitamivir was very similar, and the side effects were equivalent between the two antiviral therapies, and so that was also quite crucial that these individuals uh, not only had a similar side effect profile, but really had a similar reduction of symptoms when compared to the two treatment groups. And finally, I guess the last thing that's significant that there was a good reduction in their, their titers. So not only subjectively, but objectively, their serum titers all greatly reduced with the Biloxivir, which is, is quite good that not only is it working subjectively, but clinically it's reducing. Yeah, absolutely. And you, with about 15% of these patients being influenza swab negative, it may have actually drowned out some of their results. So you wonder what the true result would have been if they were all influenza positive. Yeah. All right, so tell us about some of the limitations of the study. So I think the limitations of the study was that the population assessed were really the ones that were not complicated, and that's part of their their study design, the people with not the comorbidities, not the hospitalized, not the high-risk patients, not the ones that we're typically seeing in the hospital setting as an inpatient or in the intensive care unit. These are the individuals that are kind of going to alleviate their symptoms. This has just improved their symptoms a bit quicker. You know, this is good to see. These people 
would have gotten better, but this was not a study to investigate mortality. There was not, a, you know, the, the high risk, the sicker patients. So that is a limitation to this study in, in my point of view, but it wasn't looking necessarily at those individuals. They did not allow them to obviously be in the study. And they are the younger folks. You know, they're the ones that are younger adults, a bit more robust Interestingly, they're, you know, still the people that aren't getting vaccinated, so at least has some uh, real-world applicability to it. Yeah, I think the main issue comes down to generalizability as far as, you know, these are not the typical people we would be giving an antiviral for influenza. Take us home. What's the big take-home point? Well, I think, as you alluded to there, Andre, I think the, the key point here is that at least this is a safe drug. This has benefit in the uncomplicated patient population, the patients that we typically wouldn't give this drug to per se, but at least there's a shown benefit. It does reduce symptoms. It does improve titers serologically. But, you know, this is, I think, the tip of the iceberg for this drug treatment. And they allude to this at the very end of their paper that Currently, there is a clinical control uh, trial that is looking at high-risk individuals and using this drug, and also to the point that maybe that this is a drug that can be in addition to the olsatamivir, and so mm. maybe you know attacking the virus at two different mechanisms of action may continue to further benefit those that are quite ill and in you know dire need of uh, antiviral treatment. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And so, you know, early type studies, but I think interesting and, and certainly worthwhile chatting on the rounds table. All right, let's switch gears. So the article that I chose is titled Antibiotic Prophylaxis and Incidence of Endocarditis Before and After the 2007 AHA Recommendations. This was published in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology in November of 2017 by Martin Thorndale and colleagues. So, uh, Andre, what is the uh, bottom line? So, this study, using a very large administrative data set in the United States, demonstrated a reduction in antibiotic prophylaxis for infective endocarditis after the initiation of the 2007 American Heart Association guideline. But over the same time frame, they also found an increased rate of admissions for infective endocarditis. So, why did you choose this study? So I think for two different reasons. The first is that antibiotic prophylaxis for infective endocarditis remains unclear for many clinicians, including general internists doing pre-admit clinic, family physicians, as well as dentists. I think there's uncertainty as to who should receive antibiotic prophylaxis for which procedures, and the question of does it even work? Secondly, it's not often that you see a study that is examining the impact of clinical implementation of a clinical practice guideline. So I thought it was cool from that perspective. So what is the design of the study? So to back up a little bit, in 2007, the American Heart Association released new guidelines for antibiotic prophylaxis for infective endocarditis. And they restricted antibiotic prophylaxis to patients who would have the highest complications if they developed infective endocarditis. So this included four groups of patients. First, there were patients with previous infective endocarditis. Secondly, patients with prosthetic heart valves or grafts. Next, patients with previous heart transplants who had known valve disease, and also a subset of congenital heart disease patients. The main question of this study is what happened 
to antibiotic prophylaxis and admissions for infective endocarditis after these 2007 guidelines were released. This was a retrospective cohort study using linked administrative data from both commercial insurance as well as Medicare enrollees in the United States who were greater than the age of 18 years old from the years 2003 to 2015. They divided those years into three different groups. There was the pre-AHA recommendation years, so from 2003 to 2007, the transition years from 2007 to 2008, and the post-recommendation years from 2008 to 2015. Patients were then classified as either high, moderate, or low risk of infective endocarditis. The high-risk patients were those who, according to the 2007 AHA guidelines, should have received antibiotic prophylaxis. So those are those four groups I previously mentioned. The moderate-risk patients are those with previous rheumatic heart disease, non-rheumatic valve disease, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, or congenital heart disease not fulfilling the high-risk category. They then identified patients who received antibiotic prophylaxis for infective endocarditis as patients received a prescription for a single dose of one of multiple antibiotics as per the AHA and then tracked admissions for infective endocarditis using ICD codes. Their analysis was trying to predict what the rates of antibiotic prophylaxis and infective endocarditis would have been if there had not been the 2007 guidelines and then compared those predictions using Poisson regression models to what actually took place with the AHA guidelines. Tell me about the uh, results. So this was a huge study. There were almost 200 million enrollee years. Now 93% of those patients were at low risk of infective endocarditis, 6% at moderate risk, and 1% at high risk. But the 1% is still almost 2 million enrollee years. During that time, there was 20,000 340 admissions for infective endocarditis and 1.9 million prescriptions for antibiotic prophylaxis. This is where things get interesting. Compared to what they predicted would happen after the AHA guidelines, they actually found a 64% reduction in antibiotic prophylaxis for those who are at moderate risk and 52% reduction for those who are at low or unknown risk. So that seems to be as to what the guidelines intended. But they also found a 20% reduction, so different than what they predicted, for high-risk patients. And over the same time frame, high-risk patients had a 2.7 times greater rate of infective endocarditis and moderate-risk patients had a 1.75 times greater rate of infective endocarditis. It's interesting. That is interesting. What about the limitations of the study? Well, I think that's where things get hung up. So although this seems quite provocative and concerning, I think we cannot get ahead of ourselves. This is a retrospective administrative data study, so we cannot discuss causality. We cannot say antibiotic prophylaxis lowering rates 
led to infective enterocarditis rates going up. But there's also potential issues with the actual identifying of both antibiotic prophylaxis and infective enterocarditis rates. You could certainly postulate other reasons why a patient might receive a single dose of antibiotics, including amoxicillin, cephalexin, or azithromycin. And then also, we don't know how patients were actually diagnosed with infective endocarditis. And did that change over the 12-year period? Secondly, it's certainly possible that the rates of infective endocarditis are simply different than what was predicted. Certainly here in London, we've seen a significant increase of infective endocarditis, which I would argue is different than many people would have predicted, simply because of changes in risk factors. And lastly, antibiotic prophylaxis is specifically targeting oral streptococci. We don't know the microbiology data for these cases of infective endocarditis. So we don't know whether antibiotic prophylaxis is actually targeting the drug which are targeting the bug in which is causing the issue. On the flip side, the strengths of the study is that it is a very large and quite a unique and thoughtful approach to an area which has surprisingly sparse evidence. Those are some good points. Why don't you take us home? Tell us what you take from this. Sure. So I think the, the biggest take home is that after the 2007 American Heart Association guidelines on antibiotic prophylaxis for infective endocarditis, it did seem that there was a reduction in antibiotic prophylaxis. And that's what was intended in those guidelines. The issue of why were high-risk patients, why was there a reduction in antibiotic prophylaxis for this group? That's what I'm not sure. Is it possible that clinicians have simply misunderstood these guidelines? Maybe. Is it possible that the study is simply missing the mark and actually measuring something that is unidentified? Maybe. The other possibility is that clinicians have simply decided to follow different guidelines. And I say that because in 2008, the National Institute for Healthcare Excellence in the UK published guidelines which recommended that nobody receive antibiotic prophylaxis for infective endocarditis. And then the issue of as the rates of antibiotic prophylaxis go down, the rates of infective endocarditis seem to go up, I uh, would strongly caution listeners to not jump to conclusions. I don't think we should be making clinical judgments based on these results. I don't think the study gives us enough information to change clinical practice. But it is a bit interesting. Mm -hmm. All right, let's switch gears to now the good stuff segment. So Mike, tell us about what you've been reading about. So my article is actually a CBC news piece that is back into my neck of the woods with uh, cystic fibrosis treatments. And it's a really interesting article that was published around the time of the Health Canada or the Canadian Agency for Drugs and Technologies drug review and their decision to not publicly fund one of the new gene modulators out for CF. And it's actually an article about a patient that has had a life-changing experience on one of these gene modulator drugs. And I find it uh, very interesting in the sense that I'm coming from it from a medical point of view and understand the benefits of these drugs. But 
there is still a lot of alternate viewpoints on drugs like this, especially with the hefty price tag that can come with these medications of upwards of $250,000 per year. And so some individuals are covered by it via private insurance, some are on compassionate care programs, but this recent uh, ruling to not add uh, one of these newer gene modulators to the publicly funded medication list is something that's going to be, I think, to and fro for the next many years with all the newer drugs that are coming out for not only cystic fibrosis and that pipeline, but also many other conditions. Oh, absolutely. And, and yes, this issue is not going away. And it's amazing how often you see these types of articles. It's quite heartbreaking at times. Anyways, you've gone back to your neck of the woods, and I've done the same uh, with non-cancer palliative care. And so the article that I chose is from the Journal of Palliative Medicine in November of 2018, and it is titled, Top 10 Tips for Palliative Care Clinicians Caring for Heart Failure Patients. So this is really a top 10 list of both clinically very practical, but also some big picture issues about dealing with advanced heart failure, including the issues of polypharmacy, the issues of symptom burden beyond simply dyspnea, but also the blurring lines between advanced life-prolonging care and palliative or end-of-life care in the era of device therapy and heart failure. So I think a worthwhile read for really any clinician who might see heart failure. All right, that takes us to the end. I want to thank Mike again for taking the time over the holidays. I appreciate it very much. That is it for us. Welcome back, listeners, to another special segment on the Rounds Table. I'm Shaliza Halani, the Special Segments Developer. I'm an R1 in Internal Medicine at the University of Toronto, and we're kicking off this season's special segments with a discussion on burnout in medicine. Just starting my residency, I want to be as aware of the signs of burnout as I can be. And in talking to others, burnout seems to be an important issue at all levels of training. I totally agree with you, Shaliza. I'm really glad that we're talking about this today. My name is Emily Hughes. I'm a final year med student at U of T, and I'm the producer of the show. We have a fantastic guest joining us today. Dr. Shelley Dev is an intensive care physician at Sunnybrook and a leader in the conversation around physician burnout. Welcome to the show, Dr. Dev. Thank you. So, Dr. Dev, I'm wondering, how does one recognize that they may be experiencing burnout? What are some of the stages that people may go through or the symptoms that they may experience? I would say that burnout, as far as I have seen it, and I've seen it in the sense of being somebody who's probably experienced it at various stages of my career and probably earliest on when I was in medical school and in residency. I only know that now because we seem to know more about it. I think that from my own experience of burnout, I would describe it as feeling as though a lot of things around me were a little bit out of control and feeling as though I had really lost the joy connected to the kind of work that I was doing. It became a lot of me coping with the things around me instead of directly assessing how I was feeling about things. And so I think I've spoken a lot about coping behaviors where we behave in ways that are angry or darkly humorous or sometimes apathetic in order to just deal with the stresses of this kind of job. I think that when you're going through it, you yourself personally just think that that's part of the experience of being a doctor. And I think you think that that's just how it is. 
And in fact, those end up what we know now, I believe, being symptomatic of somebody who is actually losing their connection with what they're doing. Very interesting. And I think the immediate thought that comes to mind for me is now, how do we deal with this? What resources can people go to? And what do you think would be the best next steps when someone feels that they're experiencing these behaviors? I think this is a really, really difficult question to answer. And I find it a very frustrating one to even attempt to answer, because I think that we are still in the, what I would say is the sharing phase of this problem. We are being inundated you know, for for good intention with all the data about burnout, where people answer a lot of anonymized questionnaires about have you experienced the following, right? And so I think we all agree that this is a problem, but we still haven't got to a point where people feel comfortable saying this was me and or people feeling comfortable or feel unthreatened by being stigmatized for being connected to a period in their life where they were unwell, their mental health suffered, their personal lives suffered, their jobs suffered. I think that the anonymous place where this exists, where we recognize it as a problem, has shown us that it is a problem, but we have not personalized this experience. I think this sharing phase of it is actually really, really important. I am someone who thinks that people who occupy spaces of privilege in this profession, meaning people who, you know, are comfortably employed, have positions of leadership, have positions where they can exert a lot of influence on other people, are people who are really, really primed to set an example to say, this is something that has affected all of us and make it about us rather than some people experience this. Mm -hmm. A lot of us experience this. So why is that important to actually participate in the sharing? Because this is about a cultural change in medicine. This is about changing what we think our medical culture should be. Our medical culture needs to be a place where we are okay with being people who are flawed, who suffer, who experience turmoil in our lives. We need to be a culture where we encourage each other to get better through it and support each other and help each other get through it so that we all agree we all want to be healthier and if we are our lives will be healthier we'll be better healthcare providers right like that is the agreement we need to make with each other that is not a theoretical agreement that's a real-time agreement so what does that mean that means that we are a culture that if somebody is unwell and needs to go home unwell that we have a culture that can absorb that we do not have a culture that can absorb that People talk about system change that's needed to address burnout in medicine, but people also talk about needing to enhance individual resiliency. Sometimes I think that these two compete and that it can be next to impossible to be individually resilient in a system that needs to change. Then, when it's put on the individual to be more resilient, resiliency can just seem like it's another task that the individual is expected to succeed at. And if that individual is not resilient, it can seem like one more thing that the individual can fail at. How, how do you think that we can balance this, the need for systems change and the need to develop individual resiliency? Another tricky point, really good point and really tricky because I know that the younger members of our field, like the two of you, your curriculum is keeping in tune with what is the latest on wellness and resilience and mental health. And the fact is that you learn all those things 
which is good and useful in and of itself. And then you come to a workplace where people have not learned this, where people have not adopted this as part of their work life. And our workplace culture has not adopted it and learned it in the rigorous way that you have. And then you have this major chasm of disconnection. So I'm not sure where the place is for all of that wonderful education about how you're supposed to take care of yourself when the place in which you're supposed to take care of yourself has not been groomed in the same way to learn these things. So this is where we talk about the workplace culture and the space, right? I think what we are spending a lot of time focusing on or over-focusing on are little band-aid solutions. Talking to people about exercise, talking to people about sleep, talking to people about meditation, talking to people about nutrition. Of course, these are important things. I like That's important to me in my daily life. What we are not talking about is how to create a work life that allows you to actually practice those things in your life. I don't know what the answer to that is, but what I think will allow us to get to that point is the acknowledgement that these are band-aid solutions. These are not things that are going to change the way in which we work. And the way in which we work does not allow for people to actually deal with the stress of this job. It does not allow for people to actually process the things that they have seen or the traumas that they've taken part in or the experiences they've had with people to recover from those things. So I don't know how you are supposed to apply those things in a real time, real life example. I think there's lots of people who are interested in this, which I think is wonderful. I think that's really encouraging. But I think we need to be made to feel a little bit uncomfortable with a little dose of some reality of how people experience their jobs, what their personal experiences are like, to actually see, wow, people are not well. They are not happy doing the work that they always wanted to do. And what will it take to actually make them enjoy coming to work? What will it take to make them feel the enthusiasm and the promise of what they're doing again? because I think this is the best work in the world. Like there's nothing better than to be able to take care of people or help people. Like that is the best thing you could do with your life. I really think that it's a privilege. It's important that you feel that way. It's important that you feel like you do that. So I feel so stuck on this. I'm very much wanting to engage in discussions with people who are really interested in making this conversation personal. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Roundstable or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. The Rounds Table would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia Flores, communications director, Grace Zhao, segment director, Shaliza Halani, host director Dan Marinescu, director of quality and evaluation Wilson Kwong, and faculty mentor and founder of the rounds table Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in.